good morning. My name's Keelan. I'll be doing the Bible reading. We'll be going through uh, Romans 1.1 1, 1 and Romans 16.1-24. Um, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Personal greetings. Uh, I commend you. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the Church of Centrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of His people, and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my, fr my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Perseus, or Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. Chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerissus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings that you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of the naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality and I, the whole church here, enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works and our brother Quartus, send you their greetings. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thank you, Keelan. <clears throat> uh, we're reading a letter to a house church, so I might make myself uh, use, make use of some furniture this morning. Thank you to uh, Beth, who uh, hooked me up with it. Thank you for that. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, welcome to WDBC. My name is Jonathan. It's great to see you this morning. Great to be here worshiping with you uh, as we begin 
our look into the book of Romans, albeit starting at the end and working our way forwards. Uh, this is not my idea originally. Uh, this is something uh, that's been discussed uh, in circles of New Testament scholars and sort of most recently a scholar by the name of Scott McKnight. He wrote a book called Reading Romans Backwards. And so uh, the structure of this series in terms of how the how the texts have been arranged, uh, you need to know it's been really influenced by that book. So uh, what we'll do is we're going to make available uh, for those who want us, who want to kind of read along or, or want some recommendations of books to read, uh, what we'll do is uh, you can write your name down at the back and we'll make sure that you get a copy of the list of recommended books. And if you'd like to order a book, you'll have an opportunity to do that as well. Uh, this uh, McKnight's book, Reading Romans Backwards, is can be a little bit hard to find, uh, but we're happy to do our best to try to arrange that. Uh, so we'll have, a we'll have a sheet of paper available at the back, and you'll just put your name on it and your contact details, and we'll get information out to you uh, regarding um, some recommended reading as you journey along with us. Uh, at the beginning of McKnight's book, he says this, obviously, the best way to read Romans is forwards. <laughs> That's obviously the best way to read it. Um, but if you've been a Christian for some time, or maybe you were introduced to the faith, you're, you're introduced to the book of Romans, and it's often presented as a theological treatise or summary, if you will, of the Christian doctrines of the church, and it very much can suit that. But Romans has been so used by the church throughout the centuries in this very rich theological exposition and explanation that we can often forget that it was originally a letter. And if it was originally a letter and not a lecture, then it was actually originally sent to people. So just by show of hands, I'm curious here today, how many of you have heard a sermon on Romans 16? Okay, a couple, three, all right, all right. How many have heard a sermon on Romans 1? Yep. Two, three, four, eight, definitely eight. All the hands should go up. If you haven't heard a sermon on Romans 8, I feel sorry for you. Um, so we're going, to, we're going to begin sort of, we're going to begin at the, begin at the end. And, and the way that I'd like to sort of set this up for you is there's a lot of ways to understand the gospel and understand what it does. You can have it explained to you. You can also just see what it does. And by starting at the end of the book of Romans, we're actually looking at what the gospel has done to set the table for understanding it as it's explained and how it does that, how the good news of Christ works. We've subtitled this series, Forming the Transformed Community. And that's important because uh, transformation is, is what happens in the life of the believer. Transformation is in our vision statement. We, we are here, but we want to see all people, men, women, children, all people transformed by God's word and spirit for faith in Christ. That's not our idea. That's what we believe God is calling us to do, to be transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. But that is a process, isn't it? And so Romans is a great book that shows us how the transformed community is formed or is shaped. So we hope 
this doesn't throw you off too much. Uh, this is new for me, so please uh, be, uh, be gracious and generous. <laughs> but also, don't withhold your feedback. If you're like, hey, this isn't doing it for me, let me know how we can help you. We'd love to, we'd love to help you in this, in this process. So we're going to begin by looking at who this community is, who makes up the church. In other words, what the gospel does. And from there, we'll begin to learn how it actually does that. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 16. And as you're opening uh, your Bible to Romans chapter 16, or flicking in your smartphone, uh, after you've done that, what I want you to do is I want you to take out that little slip of paper that you were given on the way in. Uh, It's a name tag. It's a name tag. And these are all names from Romans chapter 16. All right. Now there's... There's about 35, depending on how you, there's about 35 people uh, listed in this chapter. There's obviously more than 35 of you here today. So there's some duplicates in here. But what I'd like you to do is follow with me, all right? Peel the back off. If you haven't done it already, peel the back off. First, look at it in case you don't know who you are. Pull the back off. Peel it. Stick it on your shirt. There we go. And if you say, well, I don't know. Is, is mine a man or a woman? That's not the point. We know you're not the actual person, all right? Mine says Julia. We're just, it's an exercise. Go with me here. Now, why are we doing this? We're doing this because if you're given a list of names, you don't think much about it, do you? If I give you the roll sheet from your child's classroom, you probably don't think much about it. It's a lot different if you walk into your child's classroom and you say, wow, look at all these kids. Look at the future. Look at, look, at what, look at what might be with these children. So the reason we gave you a name tag this morning is for you to understand that every name listed in this book, whether you understand that name or you use that name or it's a strange name, every name in there represents someone or someone's. Every name in this chapter represents a person with a story, with a history a person with a future, a person who heard and received the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's how we're going to work this this morning. At various times, I'm going to to ask for your person to just be recognized, okay? And what I'd like you to do is when your name, so to speak, is called out, right, or mentioned, just throw your hand up. Just throw your hand up so we know that, that you're a real person. You're a real person, all right? And this is not a perfect exercise, and, and we, we, we sort of began this beforehand. So I've got to get this out of the way first. Uh, is, there a, is there an Aristobulus or a Narcissus in the room? All right, Arist- not a household, not a household of these two, but then Aristobulus or a Narcissus in the room? All right, okay. Sorry, you weren't there, you're dead, all right? <laughs> so we're just getting that out of the way. You, you, er- Aristobulus, Aristobulus was a relative of Herod Agrippa, right? A very, very prominent Jew, and, and he, he died. <laughs> he was dead by the time this letter was written, but his household persisted, okay? But he was so famous that, that, that his household still carried his name. Same thing with you, Narcissus. Unfortunately, the Romans forced you to commit suicide at the changeover of regimes, so all the Narcissus are dead. Uh, but his household lives on, and you're in a very precarious situation, those of you in the household of narcissists, because your leader, the person who was over your house, was a threat to the state. 
And so you're feeling a little bit precarious right now. So Aristobulus, Narcissus, sorry, you're, you're, you're out from here on out. <laughs> so here we are, uh, reading Romans backwards. The, the message this morning is around this idea of commending God's peace commending God's peace to one another. As we finished Luke's gospel last week, and I encourage you to go back and listen if you haven't heard it. Uh, As we finished Luke's gospel, there's this great picture of Jesus with his hands spread out over the disciples, lifting his hands and, and blessing them before he departs and goes to heaven. And Jesus is proclaiming peace. You'll recall earlier in Luke 24, when he showed up to the disciples, his, his word was, peace be with you. You may have heard the phrase, it's, very, it's really prominent and popular in Baptist churches, the priesthood of all believers. Raise your hand if you heard the phrase priesthood of all believers. What if you've used the phrase priesthood of all believers? Yep. What if I told you the priesthood of all believers was less about democracy and more about blessing? We, we use that phrase to say, I'm a priest, I get a vote. And I'm congregationalist, I'm not bashing congregationalism, but I think we miss the whole import of that phrase. The priesthood of all believers, the job of the priest was to represent God to the people and the people to God. And so as Christians in the church of Jesus Christ, to be a priest means that you are someone who passes on the blessing and the peace of Jesus Christ. It's not about your vote or your authority. It's about you as an ambassador it's about you as someone filled with the Holy Spirit who's, been, who's, who's enlivened by Jesus Christ to, to carry on the blessing of Jesus. So as he lifted his hands and departed from the Mount of Olives and went up to heaven, he said blessings. He blessed the people. So the church is to bless one another. So the church is to bless God. And so the church is to be a blessing to the world. That's part of being the priesthood of all believers. So we, we commend God's peace to the world. Now, here's an overview of the whole series. I'm not going to take too much time, but this is just for those of you who are like, I don't know what we're going to do. We're starting at the back of the book. This is just to let you know, just to settle your nerves a little bit, all right? There's four major sections in Romans around, around these chapters. And so we're not, we're not actually going to read the words backwards, right? We're going to deal with the sections and, and perhaps an alternate order. The first section we're going to deal with is chapters 12 to 16 which is the theme of a community that's called to peace. And here it's going to be just a a focus on the church in Rome. The church in Rome and what they're dealing with. Then we're going to look at chapters 9 to 11 to, to try and understand, as Christians, our common family history, as it were. And then we're going to jump to the beginning of the book and look at our common family traits, Romans 1 to 4 before we come back out in chapters five to eight to consider a com- what it means to be a community that's born of the Spirit, all right? So for those of you who are feeling a little bit anxious, I get it, I would be you, I would be feeling really anxious too. I don't, this isn't how you do it. This is just to let you know where we're going. So underneath that first section, this is, this is how we're gonna be treating, uh, this is what's all within that first section. So today we're looking at commending God's peace. Next week, we'll talk about communities that are craving peace before we move into a vision for Christian in community, a community that looks upward, that looks inward, and looks outward. 
before we finish this section by discussing habits of the transformed community and what it means to be a community clothed with Jesus Christ. So this is, this is where we're going, but this is where we are today, commending God's peace. So would you pray with me as we uh, jump in? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have today to open the scriptures together. I pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us, would impress your truth upon us. We know that Jesus poured out the Spirit, that we might be taught spiritual truths with spiritual words. We know that not all believe, but Lord, we would be counted among those who do believe. And so we pray that your spirit does his awakening and his enlightening work among us today as we look at your church. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Our big question today is, who is the gospel for? Who is the gospel for? Now, if you've been in church, you've been in Sunday school, you might say, it's for everyone. And you're right. It is for everyone. But we want to ask, who's a part of the who? See, I could say, you're all invited to my house, but if I only give you, if I only give 10 of you an invitation, are you really all invited? So we can say the gospel's for everyone. We can say that, that, that everyone is allowed to get in on this, but... There's something instructive about looking at the early church and saying, who, who is a part of this Christian community? So the big idea this morning is that because the gospel is good news for everyone, it will form a new community of peace among us. Because the gospel is for everyone, it will form a new community of peace among us. You say, how can you say that? How do you know it'll be a new community? It's easy because humanity, apart from God, has become especially skilled at building walls and divisions between one another on the basis of all sorts of different things. Humanity is not known for its inclusivity. Even our attempts at inclusivity can become excluding. But when we say who the gospel is for, we see that there is this beautiful equity in the invitation. There's a sense in which everyone is allowed to come and to participate in the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we participate, you join a new community. I want to say welcome to those of you online this morning. Some of you may say, why do you bother welcoming people who are online? Well, I'm welcoming them because they've decided to join. But you say, well, they're not attending the service. Well, I don't know why they're not attending. You're welcome to attend the service. But, but there's a difference between attending a service and joining a community. You see, you attend a service like you would attend a rock concert or a symposium or a workshop or some other activity, as an attendee, you attend in order to receive something that you might not normally get. But in the church, we don't just attend services, we actually belong to a community. That means we start from the presupposition that we all share something. So whether you're online or you're in the pews, we share something together. 
And the invitation is extended to those who are online, if you happen to be watching. The invitation is extended not because we need to fill seats or not because I want more faces to look at while I preach, but it's, it's extended because you belong to this. You're a part of it. But what's amazing about the gospel is the community that's formed is not a community that's formed by lowering all standards. It's not a community that's formed by erasing distinction in identity. It's a community instead that's formed by elevating, elevating people into good standing and right standing with God. You catch the difference? You see, it's one way to try to establish an equal community by erasing all distinction of gender, race, culture, and trying to establish absolute, absolute, the elimination of all the things that make a person a person. But there's a different kind of equality that's established in the kingdom of God. It's an equality that's established by elevating everyone into right standing with God and sharing in community around that, isn't it? We need to go into the context, particularly because we're starting in the back. Romans 16 is, is the end of the letter, and so this answers some of the questions. And we need to tackle these before we get anywhere meaningful in the text. Four questions. Who wrote the letter? Who's receiving the letter? Where is it being sent? How is it being delivered? Those aren't necessarily in logical order, but <laughs> the order I came up with. Who wrote the letter? We know Paul wrote the letter, but we also know that Paul wasn't the one who wrote it down. Because we see at the end of chapter 16, I, Tertius, wrote down this letter. So the bulk of the letter is Paul. There, there you are, Tertius. I see you back there. There you go. That's good. I see you there. Thanks for the penmanship. I heard Paul's wasn't very good. So, Paul is the author of the letter. Tertius is the one who's writing it down. Now, who is receiving this letter? Well, you got name tags to tell you who's receiving the letter. Most scholars, and there is not a definitive, definitive answer on this, but most scholars have come to a consensus that the letter to the Romans is delivered to between three and five house churches three and five house churches in the city of Rome. Now, Rome's the capital of the empire. Rome is a dangerous place and is going to become an even more dangerous place for Christians. It was not a place where Jews were welcome about 10 years or five to 10 years before this letter was written. And so it's a politically dicey environment. You also have, as you do have in many capital cities, a large representation of many different strata of society. You have high Roman nobility. You have merchants. You have politicians. You have workers in households. You have slaves. You have people who were slaves but have somehow secured their freedom and are now trying to make a living. You have all these different things going on. It's a diverse community. But in particular, and we're going to unpack this more next week, Paul references two main groups in this church, this broader church, the Christians in Rome. There's what he calls the weak 
and the strong. The weak and the strong. And I'm going to leave you in suspense until next week when we have more time to unpack it. But in, in addressing the weak and the strong, isn't it wonderful that we see here that not everybody is in the same place in the church? Not, everybody, not everyone who's there has a stalwart faith. Not everyone there who is, is in exactly the right place. They don't line up on every single issue. There may even be a little bit of tension. That's who's receiving this letter. As we said, where is it being sent? It's being sent to Rome. That's very clear. Paul, and again, this is, this is in discussion, but Paul is likely sending this letter from Corinth. Corinth. And how is it being delivered? We have the answer to that in verse 1 when Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Centrea. Centrea is, is a place about eight miles northeast of Corinth. Paul says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. That's a very significant line. But what you need to know is Phoebe's the one who's bringing this letter. And to bring a letter, you often need, you needed some form of commendation. Because if you think back in, in those days, you didn't have anything close to facial recognition. <laughs> There was no face ID. They couldn't, they couldn't type your name into a Google search and, and check your credentials. There was a lot of instances in, in history of people impersonating other people and misleading officials. So it was very important to have a sense of who is bringing the letter. And so Paul is commending to this church. He said, this is Phoebe, and she's bringing the letter. I want you to imagine her walking into a house church between 30 and 50 people and delivering this letter. And whether she simply handed it over or more likely, as people would say, more likely read or performed the letter, these churches, these churches are hearing this great epistle, this great source of Christian doctrine for the very first time from this likely wealthy woman who was a patron to Paul and a servant, a deacon of the church. And she showed up. Isn't it amazing to think that the first person to read Romans aloud, the first people who heard Romans heard it from the lips of Phoebe. And I don't know if you've ever had any questions about any passages in Romans. I mean, we, we, we you know, maybe say Romans 9, for instance, <laughs> or Romans 7, where Paul says, I don't understand the things I do. The person who would have been fielding these questions was Phoebe. What did Paul mean by that? What, what's he saying there? In Romans 7, is he, is, he talking, is he talking about himself before he was a Christian or was he talking about himself after he was a Christian? She's there delivering the letter. 
All right, so in terms of overview, we'll go through this pretty quickly. Romans 16 describes the new community of peace formed around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this new community is unique in three ways. And so we see the diversity of the church, the unity of the church, and the hospitality of the church. Three unique elements that emerge about this new community that the gospel has created. The diversity of the church, the unity of the church, and the hospitality of the church. First of all, diversity. And here we look at the scope of God's peace. Paul is talking, he's commending the peace of God. The scope. And here we see the extent of God's peace. It's extended to us in Christ. That extent of peace is shown in the diversity of the church community in Rome where Paul greets 26 different people. Paul hadn't even been to Rome yet as a missionary. John Stott in his commentary highlights three divisions that are overcome in Christ. And these three emerge from these names in the passage. The first division is race. There are Jewish and Gentile names here. There's also Greek and Roman or Greek and Latin names here. What about class? A number of the names in this chapter represent people who were slaves or who used to be slaves. Even among Paul's company in Corinth, who's sending the letter, look at verse 24, at the end, sorry, verse 23. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus send you their greetings. Who's Cortus? His name just means number four. We got any number fours in here? Anybody, any Cortis? No? We'll save that for night, church. He didn't have a name because he was a number because he was a slave. Your name is a number. And here it is for all time in Holy Scripture. Classes were crossed and... and and one that is prominent here in this text is gender. We see women and men playing key roles in the church. Paul goes out of his way to greet nine different women in this passage. And what he has to say about these women commends them. And it shows that they're not just serving cups of tea. They're not just baking cakes. We already talked about Phoebe, who is a patron of Paul. We get to verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila. We got a Priscilla and Aquila in here. There we go. Anybody else? There we go. We go. Good to see you. Which one are you, by the way? Priscilla. We got a Priscilla here. There we go. My coworker in Jesus Christ. Now, it's probably no mistake that Paul greets her first, her and her husband first. What is interesting is in the majority of instances in the New Testament, her name precedes his, which has led scholars to speculate. But this husband and wife team, they were fellow tent makers like Paul. Paul met them first in Corinth after they'd been expelled from Rome because they were Jews. And so they take their business down to Corinth, and while they're in Corinth, they meet Paul. Paul finds them such valuable companions that he takes them with him to Ephesus as he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And he leaves them in Ephesus so that they can continue on the ministry. And Luke writes to us that they had a significant role to play because in Ephesus, it's Priscilla and Aquila who kind of straighten out Apollos. Apollos was 
a masterful orator. He was strong and mighty in the word and the scriptures. He's from the church down in Alexandria. He's an Alexandrian Jew, sorry, who'd come to hear about Jesus Christ, and he had a faith, but it wasn't quite fully formed. But he was super gifted, and people loved to listen to him. And so they pulled him aside in their home, and they said, let me teach you the way of God more accurately. Let me teach it to you more rightly. Later on, Priscilla and Aquila, they're, they're able to move back to Rome after the edict is lifted. They're, they're now back in Rome, and there's a church that's meeting in their house. Paul says of them, they risk their lives for me. There's a wonderful phrase there. It says, they put their necks on the line. Here's a husband and wife team. Risking their lives for Jesus. You know, there's... Not too many people that I know in the Australian church who have to risk their lives for Jesus. I want you to imagine what it would take, what kind of persecution would be going on that it would be so dangerous that you had to risk your life for the gospel. We think of Paul in Ephesus when the riot broke out. You imagine them there helping him, standing with him. So he greets Priscilla and Aquila, co-workers in Christ Jesus. He then greets the church that meets in their house. He says, all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. What a, what a commendation, what a reputation in the community. He goes on to greet Eponidas. We have an Eponidas in the house. Where's Eponidas? Any? No? There you are. Hey, Eponidas. That's the first convert to Christianity in the province of Asia. Welcome. Asia is sort of modern-day Turkey, probably the first person in Ephesus. Verse 6, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you in the Lord. We got a Mary in here. No? Mary is a Jew. It's a common Jewish name. She's noted for her hard work. She's the first of four women who are commended for their labor in the Lord and how hard they're working. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now, there's a textual discussion you need to know here. I'm just bringing you up to speed. If this interests you, lock in for 30 seconds. If not, don't fall asleep. Andronicus and Junia. The name Junia, in, in the form that it's written in the original language... It's written in a form where the text doesn't show whether it's male or female. And so what's interesting is the way that has been interpreted back and forth. And for the majority of Christian history, this is interpreted as a Junius, as a male name. But the witness of the first two centuries and, and, and the early church fathers, the predominance of those references point to Juni. Junius as a Junia, as a woman. And then later on, as we've gone to look outside the scriptures and just say, how common is this name? We found over 350 references to a female version of this name, Junia, and no references to this name as a male, Junius. Which is why your Bible has translated as Junia. Now, this phrase is also interesting. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. So this is, again, likely a husband and wife pair. 
Paul says they were, they're Jews, they're Christians before he was. That means that they were likely in Jerusalem. They started off way back then. They've been in prison like Paul was in prison. They've been in prison with him. What, is, what do we do with this phrase, they're outstanding among the apostles? Your footnote might say, or are esteemed by the apostles. There's a big discussion around this, and some have, have pushed this to say, Junia is an apostle. And, and to really navigate this discussion, you need to understand that when we say apostle, there's Christ's apostles, the 12. Matthias replaced Judas. Paul was sort of added into that. But then there's other apostles. So there's big A apostles, Christ's apostles. And then there's little A apostles. This is John Stott's language, so I find it helpful. There's little A apostles. Apostle in, in, the, in, in the fundamental definition of the word, it just means somebody who's sent. And so Junia and Andronicus here are likely missionaries. They're apostles of the churches. There are people who've been sent by the church. They're missionaries. And they are outstanding among those of their kind. We move forward, Ampliatus, a dear friend in the Lord, Urbanus, these are Roman names, a co-worker in Christ. My dear friend Stachys, feel free to put your hand up. We're just calling the roll here, so there we go. Good to see you, welcome. All right. Greet Apelles. You have an we don't know much about you, Apelles, but good to see you. We do know your fidelity has stood the test, so you're commended for that. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. I know somebody back there, you're the household of Aristobulus. There you go. You're, you represent a lot of people. Think about all the children. Think about, all the, think about the servants. Think about, think about the extended relatives in that house that were represented there. Herodian, my fellow Jew and those in the household of Narcissus. Where's the household of Narcissus? There we go, there we go, we got a few of you, that's good, we got multiple representing that. Tryphena and Tryphosa, there we go, lovely. These may have been sisters, uh, given the similarity of their names. Again, these are women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis. We got a Persis, we got a few Persis. One, two, yep. Another woman who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now, we got a Rufus in here. There we go. Oh, Rufus. Three. This is great. Rufus is actually in Mark's gospel. And that's fascinating because Mark most likely wrote his gospel from Rome. And Rufus is named as the son of Simon of Cyrene. Who knows who, the, who Simon of Cyrene was? S Simon of Cyrene, Yes. He was the one who helped Jesus carry the cross. And so this likely is his son. He is chosen in the Lord. And his mother too, who's been a mother to me too. Great asyncretus. We have asyncretus here. There we go. We don't know much about these ones. Phlegon, Hermes. Petrobus and Hermas. There we go. You were likely slaves. 
likely slaves in Caesar's household. Philologus, Julia, that's me, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the Lord's people who are with them greet one another with a holy kiss. These are all the people that Paul names in his greeting. What I want you to see is the diversity. The peace of God breaks down all these barriers. These are all people who are part of a new community. And so what, what it means is we need to see each other. Paul's not only greeting the people in charge. He's not only recognizing the men. He's not only recognizing his, his people that he worked alongside. There's a diversity that's represented. There's a diversity that he is pointing out as he greets these people. These are the people who are making up the early church. The second unique thing about this community is the unity that they have. And in our unity, we see the power of God's peace. There's key phrases repeated throughout this section, and regardless of class or background or geography, they point to the unifying power of God's peace, which has been won for us in Christ. Notice how many times the phrase, in the Lord, appears. Notice how many times the phrase, brothers and sisters, appears. Notice how many times Paul adds this word, co, the co-laborer, a co-worker. And Paul can even say something like, all the churches of Christ send greetings. Diversity is a fact of the church. It describes the, the, the breadth of the gospel, the way it reaches across tribes, nation, and tongue. This is what the vision of Revelation is, that people from all nation and all different races, all colors, all backgrounds are there worshiping the risen King Jesus. But it is the power of God's peace that keeps the church unified. There is not just diversity. There is unity in the diversity. And that's what makes the Christian community so profound. And that's why when you're talking to people who are saying, I don't know, believe in all that sort of Christianity, that histor that's, a, that's a myth, that's sort of relic of a bygone era, I encourage you, just, just ask him, well, how do you explain the existence of the church? Back then and today. There is a unity that brings us together. You say, what, what sort of things are we unified in? Well, if we look at the way this letter begins and the way many of Paul's letters begins, he says, grace and peace to you. From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, we are unified in the grace that we received. He unpacks this really well in Philippians chapter 1, where he says, he says, you are, you are in partnership with me in the gospel. We have received this common grace together. So the church, as, whenever it threatens to, to split apart, it's the very grace that we've received, the forgiveness that we know in Christ, that pulls us back together. You cannot, you cannot erect a wall amongst the people who are all guilty before God. And again, and amidst the people who have all been loved by God. And amidst the people who have all trusted the same Jesus. 
Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, but what about, but what about, what about? We spend enough time talking about what about. I want to just sit for a minute and think about all the different people listed here, all the people represented in these churches, and the power of Christ to bring them together into the same community, that they're all welcome at the same table. They all partake of the same grace. They're going to share the corridors of heaven together. They're going to walk on the streets just like the slaves are, just like you and I are. Paul would say, I don't think this is Paul actually, that's a slip up. (laughs) In Hebrews chapter 12, in Hebrews chapter 12, we read, let us press on, right? But how does that image begin? We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. The picture there is that the church for all time, those who have fallen asleep, those who've gone before, the saints and the old and the new, They are looking and they're cheering collectively as God's people run the race set before them. You are part of something. I want to put two pictures up for you. Sorry, they're not on the screen, just in your mind here, okay? Who who watched the coronation last night? Wow. Sorry, I say that as an American, not as, (laughs) there's no judgment in that, all right? I I just, uh, yeah. I read about it this morning. In the coronation, you have this picture of exclusivity, this picture of only one. Whether you like the person or not, whether they have the internal character required to be king or not, whether they have conducted themselves in a way where there is one person allowed into that role. Last night, we were at the finale for my son's performance in in a musical. And can I tell you the contrast in watching the pictures from the (laughs) the solemnness of the coronation and watching these kids who performed in a musical, five performances over four days, and to watch kids from primary school all the way up to the end of high school alongside teachers and parents and volunteers. And not everybody had the same part. Not everybody was on stage. Not everyone had the experience. Not everyone was as confident as everybody else. But to watch them all pulling together because they were unified in purpose and mission and vision. The show was supposed to, the show ended at 9.30, 9.35. We didn't get home till 10.30. Do you know why? Because we, as parents and friends of, of those in the community, are standing outside the dressing room as each cast member is being chanted by name so that when they burst out the door, they're celebrated and they're spurred on and they're cheered. It was such a picture of unity amidst diversity. As Christians, we know the same Lord. We've been called by the same gospel. We serve the same kingdom and the same purpose. We have the same hope. As Paul writes in Ephesians, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. This pulls us together. 
If you're not being drawn together with your brothers and sisters, the chances are the Spirit is not leading you or you're not walking in the Spirit's leading. Now, there's times when the church has to say, you're out. There's times when that unity must be redrawn or reinforced because things have crept into the church that will destroy it. And that's very serious as well. But sometimes we're so worried about the risks, so worried that we forget the unity. Finally, practicing God's peace. The church is known for its hospitality. The peace of God's people is to be practiced. You, 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 you show it. You actually demonstrate it. The peace of God's people, it's meant to be shared and demonstrated through physical acts of affection and tangible gifts of hospitality. So I'd like you now to turn to the person on your left and give them a holy kiss. Just kidding. <laughs> <You're fa yeah. laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. But doesn't that say something about us? Now, it's probably a bit of our culture, a bit of our Western culture. You know, J.B. Phillips would translate this. He would say, give each other a hearty handshake in the Lord. But this actually was picked up in 150 AD. This was picked up by the church and it was incorporated into their liturgy. Before they would take communion, they would pass the peace. And passing of the peace was a physical greeting. It was looking one another in the eye. It was taking them by the hand. Before they went to the Lord's table, they were meant to, to look at each other and say, we're good. You're my brother. You're my sister. I love you. One of the saddest things to me is when I watch people walk into the church with their head down and they're not trying to look at anybody. They're not trying to see anyone. It's so sad because the church is called to actually demonstrate and practice the peace. This is something you and I are to show to one another. And Paul, really just at the beginning of this chapter, he, he lays out for them what's been done for him. He says, as Phoebe has served as a benefactor to Paul, so now the apostle, he asks her to be a beneficiary of God's people in Rome. He says, look after her as she's looked after me, even as she fulfills her service to them. All right, some takeaways. To be a transformed community, we first ought to reserve a special welcome for believers. Now, I don't mean a secret handshake, right? You can do that if you want. But what I mean by that is there is a special welcome that's extended to other Christians. You say, oh, isn't that a bit, un isn't that a bit, isn't that a bit unkind? I'm not saying don't love your neighbor. But what Paul is showing here is that there is a special kind of relationship between believers in Jesus Christ. And so when you encounter one, you ought immediately to rush to that affirmation. And you ought to make them feel and experience the peace that you know in Christ. So yes, it's okay to have a closer relationship with your church friend than your estranged pagan uncle. Right? Sometimes we elevate the nuclear family so much 
to the exclusion of the true family. We forget that Jesus said, as his mother and brothers were saying, hey, come over here. Spend some time with us. Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are right here. Those who do the word of God, the will of God, they're my mothers and brothers and sisters. There's a special welcome extended to Christians. If you don't have a box for that, I encourage you to sit with that. These are the people you're going to be in eternity with. Secondly, those who work hard in the Lord should be known. Now, in Australia, I think sometimes we, we get this, I, and I appreciate the, the way people pull together in this culture. It's, it's beautiful, actually. And I think the beauty of Australian culture sometimes is seen in its most desperate times. There is a collective mindset. Some have described it as the tall poppy syndrome. There's a collective mindset that pulls us together. But there's, sometimes this works against us because there are people who risk their lives for Jesus. There's people who, who work hard for the Lord and we don't say anything. We sort of, the most we do is we give them a little fist bump as they leave. Oh, I see what you did there. That's so great. It's because people are so afraid of being, being recognized sometimes. But these people should be known. You've been in Foundations Group. We talk about this. Third takeaway, everyone gets to join in the service of Christ. Everyone gets to, everyone gets to play a part. Ladies, to you especially, you have a part to play. You have gifts that the Lord has given you. Notice how active, notice how involved they are. Human divisions and obstacles, they are a threat. Paul warns against that. We'll pick that up in a later message. He warns about people who would cause divisions among them. So, a few things you can do before you leave today. Greet someone outside your race, class, or gender. Now, we have a lot of people who are very similar here. But go greet somebody today. Walk up to them. Talk to somebody you don't know. Maybe they're a different age bracket than you are. Maybe, maybe you've never even stopped to, to, to even notice them. Start today by noticing them. Some of you have been so hurt by this, the first thing you do when, when the musicians get up is you head out the door. Stick around. Show tangible affection to another Christian. Men, we could do a lot better at this. Do you smile when you greet someone? Do you actually shake their hand? To put it in a negative way, we need to cut the gossip and bail out of our cliques. If you're finding security in a clique, if you're finding security in, in you know, everyone says, oh, these are my people, and I... I get the phrase, and I'm not necessarily opposed to having people that you can rely on and people support, but, but another way, I don't like the phrase because it says, you're my people, but you're not my people. And when people say that about others in the church, it doesn't sit well. We commend God's peace to you. Take a moment today. Find one another. See one another. Honor one another. 
maintain unity with one another. And I'm going to give you a chance to do this right now. Our kids are walking back into this room. When they walk into this room, I would like you to give them a standing ovation to turn around and clap them in. Are you ready? You ready? Here we go. Let's stand up. Welcome, kids. Welcome, teachers. Come on in, come on in, come on in. Keep it up, keep it up. Woohoo! Have a seat. As the band comes forward, kids, we want you to know we're glad you're here. We want you to know you're part of God's family. We want you to know that God loves you very much. And we're excited for the good things that he's going to do among us. Well, we're so grateful that you're here today. We're so grateful that you can come to worship God together. As Jesus bid farewell to his disciples, he left his peace with them. May his peace be among us. Would you stand as we sing praise to God and worship? <laughs> 